Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He is the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the administrative state, the SEC, and questions about due process. Richard, the Fifth Court of Appeals ruled in Jerkesi versus SEC that the SEC isn't allowed to be judge, jury, and prosecutor in major cases in its own courts. Now, you say in your column that the SEC had the full run of the show. Is that really that big of a deal? I mean, what's wrong with administrative agencies running their own court systems? Nemo Udex and Kauza that is, nobody should be a judge in his own case. What happens is if you are the person who formulates the rules, then you give up a, con- a complaint to it. Then what you do is you appoint the very judges to hear it, having the power to remove them if you don't what you like. Then the very people who formulated the policies are the appellate judge in the case. All of this before you get to an original court. But what happens is the risk of error and bias is simply enormous. Now, the thing to understand about this is not only are these errors enormous, but the ability of getting judicial constructive protection at the judicial level after all of this goes through literally means that you have to spend several years, hundreds of thousands of dollars on these defenses, genuine situations of emotional turmoil, the difficulty of having to figure out whether or not you can maintain yourself in your trade or your business uh, so long as this thing is going on, understanding that every bank from which you want to make a loan is going to turn around to you and start to say, you know, you've got a material lien on your property because if they decide to foreclose on your ability to do certain occupations or to impose a fine on you, their fines and their restrictions will take priority to anything that we want to do. So if you can't engage in the employment, at times you're not going to give them money. And if we decide that we're going to tax you, we get a lien over every private lien in question. So the worst thing to start to do is to say, in any case, the ability that you have some right of appeal is sufficient to the fact of having a good process from the beginning. I mean, I've seen this happen in so many different areas when I've worked with various people in, for example, sexual harassment cases inside the university or inside a school system where somebody says, well, I'm never going to let this go. You'll certainly get a fair-minded hearing at the end of the day. And then what you do is you watch people squim and squirm for two or three years as they essentially have to deal with a monolithic operation against them. So when you talk about due process, you have to talk about it from first to last. And it turns out that separation of powers is essentially an important tool that allows you to secure that particular result. And so the question in many cases is, uh, do you start to attack these kinds of biases indirectly by various structural rules, or do you look to the individual rights provisions of the Constitution, which say in connection with federal actions, nor shall private life, liberty, or property be deprived without due process of law. Your liberty concerns things having to do with your occupation, and your property has to do with all the money that's going to be attached, all the liens that are going to be imposed on your various assets should the government win. And so I tend to favor let's do it directly and not worry about the fine points of how these things are organized. Uh, it turns out in Jarkesi, what happened is the Fifth Circuit, by a divided vote, decided they were going to do it by looking at various kinds of structural protections, the right to have a jury, non-delegation, and so forth, and the dealing with the uh, 
uh, strength of the executive power. So they have many different ways to attack it. I prefer the simple, direct, and universal one. Well, tell me about these these justifications. You mentioned there were three that this case was decided on. You prefer a, a clear due process of law uh, mm-hmm. argument, but talk me through, uh, let's say, the first one, this right to a jury trial. What was what was the argument there in the case? Well, what happens is the Congress, the, the Constitution has a provision in it which starts to say that in actions at common law um, at over $20, we could forget about today, uh, the right to a jury is, is more or less guaranteed. Uh, the threshold question is, what is an action at common law? And this is an area where you have to know the history to be able to put at least some sense into this arrangement. An action at common law was generally a suit brought by a private party against another private party in a court where the remedy sought was either damages on the one hand or the restoration of a particular chattel on the other. In opposition to actions at common law was something known as actions in equity, These charted out as informal procedures in the King's Chancery, and over several hundred years, they managed to involve until the Chancery Court became an independent body. But it worked on completely different principles than the common law courts. Uh, It is said traditionally that courts of equity work on the person, which means we can order you to convey a piece of property to somebody else. We can enjoin you from doing certain kinds of activities, we can, in effect, foreclose on property. And in each of these particular cases, the remedy goes against the particular person. There is no jury trial. And in fact, if the person doesn't follow the command, they can be put into civil contempt, which means that they can be incarcerated until they perform the situation. Uh, When they came to the United States, there was no effort whatsoever at the formation of the federal constitution to try and blur and get rid of the distinction uh, between courts and equity at course of common law. Uh, This is actually a politically charged notion at the time, because during the great Koch-Ellesmere debates, um, Koch-Ellesmere debates in the early part of the 17th century, what happened is the royal courts got themselves a very bad name because they thought that the king's courts could do all sorts of abusive things. And so there was an effort in the United States to try to eliminate equity jurisdiction altogether to prevent these abuses. Uh, But what they quickly found out is if you want to prevent an abuse, it's one thing, but if you want to make sure that people can't enjoin nuisances and force sale contracts and so forth. You can't do this without a court in equity. And so when you actually look at Article 3, which gives you the judicial power, it extends to all cases in law and equity, basically reinforcing the decision and the distinction uh, that is then brought to bear in connection with the Seventh Amendment. So the next question then is, uh, what do we have here? And there are two sources of genuine difference. One is, can you say that it's an action at common law? If in fact, what you do is you have a situation brought not by a private party, but an enforcement action borne by the state. And this is one of these things where the old definitions would say no. But on the other hand, people will come as the judge did in this particular case, which he said is, look, um, as far as I'm concerned, what the state is doing when they bring an action for fraud is they're substituting for all the private individuals who under these circumstances might well have been uh, somebody who um, um, would have been able to do it themselves. So you treat the state as a stand-in for the private property. And that's the position that Judge Elrod took in this case. But it's not perfectly clear that that's correct. And the second problem is, if you look at this case, it's like a final exam question. The SEC sought both kinds of remedies. It wanted damages, 
by way of restitution. It wanted a fine, but it also wanted to enjoin the person from engaging certain activities. So some of its actions are at law and some of them are in equity. So take the following circumstance. What we do is we just drop the money, claim, and all we insist is that you be banned from the profession for life. At that point, it's not an action for common law. Do we really want to say that there should be no judicial protection whatsoever under circumstances when people strip you of your occupational freedom? And I think that's a complete mistake. And so the difficulty with the right at common law action is it simply isn't coterminous with the full range of cases that have to be dealt with, whereas the due process action applies to any action, whether in law or in equity, and insists that the same fundamental condition that you have a trial with notice of the charges before a neutral arbitrator will be respected in your case. And so she's under-inclusive on the one hand and slightly sort of shaky on the foundations for this thing going forward on the other. All right. So the second argument here um, is that it was uh, the non-delegation doctrine. You've got to, you've got to talk about this a little bit more. So this well, is what, when, when cases go to the SEC versus the federal government, I mean, are you saying that Almost no cases should go to the SEC. They shouldn't be well, allowed to refer I, them themselves. I'm saying that for different reasons. Let's go back and, and figure out what the non-delegation doctrine is. And, and this is one of these really extremely tricky doctrines, uh, which you have to respect and you don't know how to apply it. So you have an imperative and a conundrum built into one. Uh, the first and most powerful reference to this is in John Law. And what he says is that the legislature has received its powers from the people. And what the legislature cannot do is to delegate its power to a private party, because if it does so, then it's in breach of its fiduciary duties to the public who has reposed confidence in it. And the practical danger in this particular case is that if you delegate it down to somebody whose composition and dispositions are different from those of the legislature, it's not only that you get yourself a different decider, but you're likely to get yourself a different decision. Richard, but isn't the that difficult- just the administrative state in its, uh, of itself? I mean, well, that's isn't- the problem. Now, okay. what the, but then let's see. He, what Locke said was the extreme case. You take the entire legislative parliament and we delegate it to a team of Church and Epstein so that we could run everything. Mm-hmm. But then administrative agency does not receive the full delegation of authority, right? And so what happens is we now create an expert agency whose charge is to deal with fraud in the securities market or with pollution in the environmental market and so forth. And the question is, is this a breach of the duty that our friend Locke talked about? And you cannot give the categorical answer that it is surely a breach of that particular duty, uh, because in any private organization, it's very clear that the CEO cannot do everything himself. There has to be some degree of delegation. And the question then is, does it have to be a delegation to somebody whom the president can remove, or it could be a delegation to an independent body? And uh, the question was shrouded in difficulty at the time of the founding, but in a case called Humphrey's Executor, decided in 1935, the Supreme Court said, you know, we've had this Interstate Commerce Commission in business now for about 50 years, and if we say that you can't have independent agencies because all executive functions have to be subject to the president, then we have to unscramble a very large omelet. 
So what we did is we created an independent agency, staffed it with five commissioners, and said that the president can only remove those people for cause, which rarely, if ever, happens. So is this a good or a bad situation? Functionally, uh, there's a lot to be said for independent agencies of this particular model. And the argument is the executive branch, if it takes all the stuff that's done by independent agencies and puts it under the executive rule, what happens is it makes the president an officer on steroids who can do so many things that, in fact, you get a real concentration of power. So ironically, the independent administrative agencies can be regarded in some sense as a way of dividing things amongst different branches of government, improving checks and balances and the like. What you then have to do is to develop a whole set of rules to figure out how it is these bodies work and what they can and they cannot do, which is no small order. And so what happened is early on, We had a couple of challenges to delegation, and some of them made sense. Um, In one of the most famous situations, the question, if you have the power to make rules to prevent fraud um, and misrepresentation of some court, can you just simply do whatever you want to make sure that an industry is going to engage in fair practices, which means that you could do anything under the world? And so there's a strong pushback um, that took place in a case called Schechter in 1935, which says, no, that degree of delegation you can do. You cannot say that something is an unfair practice unrelated to force of fraud so that you could basically brand everything. Well, now coming to this particular case, there was a recent case, because there's a lot of pressure on this, a case called Gundy, which was kind of an even situation. It was an interesting case because what it involved was a decision by the Congress to say that we are going to impose reporting requirements on sexual offenders that they have to honor when they leave prison. And then there was a huge debate in the Congress over whether or not you ought to impose that kind of same restriction on sexual offenders who were long out of jail and who may not even have notice of this particular thing. And they decided not to resolve that question. And so what they did is they punted it down to the attorney general. Interestingly enough, every academic, both left and right, uh, thought that this was improper. The basic being intuition is, why do you want one guy to make this kind of decision when if Congress can't make up his mind, then it isn't done. And when it makes up its mind, you can then impose it. And then when you do impose it, by the way, you got serious due process problems because if it turns out they don't get notice, uh, then there's a real question of imposing major sanctions from a positive law. And there's some case law authority which saying, unless you give people information about that, you run into due process objections. So all of this is sitting out there. And the Supreme Court, in a kind of a divided decision, Elena Kagan says, I have to do this that has allowed the delegation or the administrative state is going to come to an end. That's just wild hyperbole as far as I'm concerned. What you could have done is to say, here's a very simple question. Yes, no, on legal principles. Congress can decide that. It is not an issue of deciding how to run a series of regulations to deal with thousands upon cases that fall into the old principle, where you can then figure out how to design through an administrative state what sort of notice you have to give to these people so as to be on the right side of the law. What Judge Elrod did, and I think she was just incorrect about this, is she says they delegated the decision on where to prosecute to an agency with no intelligible principle. Well, this is not what's really going on here. The intelligible principle standard involved in cases dealing with tariffs in which uh, then Chief Justice Tabb said, uh, we put a certain boundaries on what the tabs can be and a formula. And so it is a perfectly intelligible system of delegation to say that if you're between eight and 12 cents, 
you will give you a formula to decide whether you're at 9 or 11. That was the original sort of case that we're dealing with. But when you're dealing with prosecutions, prosecutorial discretion is always the norm. And nobody, but nobody has ever been able to figure out a way apart from good management to constrain prosecutorial discretion. So what she's saying is, if it's a permissible choice to either use the administrative agency or the courts, there's no way you can figure out what's going to be an intelligible line for doing that. So my guess is that even people who are in favor of limitations on delegated powers will not be particularly sympathetic to this claim. Now, I could make it simpler, but I can't do it by the courts. I can say, and this is what I would do, I'm going to give the agencies full jurisdiction to create independent judges with a right of appeal if the maximum penalty is going to be $5,000. So it's kind of a small claims court with less Mm -hmm. protection. But if you're talking about big cases, which one goes where? I can't figure out what to do. So I don't think, in effect, that that argument is going to win. But remember, if we have the due process argument, it doesn't matter where they bring this court. They're still going to have to have that independent judge. And that will mean, particularly, that it's going to be very difficult to put an agency in front an agency in charge of having its own judge decide the cases. So what due process starts to mean is that you cannot amalgamate the judicial function uh, with the administrative and enforcement functions. They have to be in independent courts appointed in different ways, like we have for the tax court and the bankruptcy court, which are specialized courts by jurisdiction, which for a whole variety of reasons have long been held constitutional. Let me know if I got this last uh, justification um, in, in this case right, which is that the issue at hand is, uh, well, the Constitution in Article 2, the executive, the chief executive, um, has to enforce the laws. And to do that, they have to be able to dismiss people, um, uh, officers who mm-hmm. aren't enforcing the law. So is that that's the third justification, right, for, for striking this down? Yeah. Yes, All well, right. the, the take care clause, um, you have to read the whole thing. It's to take care that the law be faithfully executed. The word be is in there, uh, designed to say that it's not just the president. He can do it through the heads of departments and other key officials that he appoints. So the question is, can you do this through an independent administrative agency? I'll tell you what the current compromise is, and then you can see whether you like it or don't like it. The current rules before this particular case is that if you had an agency with multiple parties, say five judges, even if it turned out they were selected uh, 3-2 with the presidential power getting the majority vote, uh, there's enough independence and cross-fertilization on that panel that you think it's going to be relatively fair. But if, on the other hand, you try to concentrate this in the hands of a single official, it would be utterly catastrophic to let the outgoing president for a five-year term appoint somebody to take this charge over where the current president can't do anything. So it's essentially it's a one-man oasis. And that was the line before this case. What Judge Elrod is saying, I don't care whether they're five or one. I want to abolish all administrative agency. And the Supreme Court hasn't gone there. And this is one of these problems. If you were to ask as an originalist matter whether or not there was any case for administrative agencies, the answer to that question is, I think, clearly no. You have three branches of government. And you had no awareness back in 1789 uh, that the size of these governments would be 10,000 times larger than it was when you originally designed uh, the Constitution. But we're not writing on a blank slate. 
What happened is all sorts of institutions grew up without being challenged. And the question not is whether or not you want to stop this when it starts. The question you have to ask is when you have a set of institutions that's been working for 100 years and you think it's been working pretty well, do you want to say, well, you couldn't have done it in the beginning, so we have to abandon it now and leave in limbo all the intermediate decisions that have been made by other people? Are we saying that these courts were really void so that every decision made by the FCC uh, before 2022 is going to be invalid? No, you're not going to say that. Well, then why invalidate the whole thing? And so I call this the prescriptive constitution. And it turns out the problem is everywhere. And I'll just mention the one case is these administrative tribunals. Another case of equal importance turns out to be the creation of Article I courts. Uh, these are courts that don't have judges with lifetime tenure. And how did they evolve? They evolved out of the chancery system. So if you start looking back to customs disputes, what typically happened is somebody would say, I think what this administrator has done is just terrible. And there would be an internal procedure inside the customs office, which would allow some senior official to review the charges and to decide what should be done with them. And after a while, what happens is it's not done on an ad hoc basis. What you do is you start having customs borders of appeals inside these government agencies to try these things. And it's kind of like a quasi-judicial process whereby it's done. So when this thing actually came to be challenged in a, a case, called Murray against Hoboken, Murray's Lassie against Hoboken in the 1850s, it was a well-established practice pretty much everywhere uh, since 1810 or 1820. And what the Supreme Court said is we're just not going to blow this up. So we're going to create a distinction that nobody knew or believed called uh, public rights and non-public rights. And a public right is something that you could adjudicate before a uh, tribunal like this, one Article I court, and a private right you can't. Well, you make up a decision out of whole cloth and have to draw where the line is. And there was no question at the beginning. The line was where the government is asserting a claim against the customs officers to whom it's delegated the power of collection. So it's the government suing on its own money. By the time you get to a case called oil states, and one of Justice Thomas's very, very worst opinion, the definition of a public right means any right created by statute, even if it regulates the relationships between two private parties. And so therefore, you could basically force somebody who wishes to defend their patent to go before a court inside the patent tribunal of, of trials and appeals before biased judges of one kind or another, and nobody but nobody has been prepared to bite the bullet and to say that if I can do the following, and I'm not exaggerating, I create a panel on an ad hoc basis, never permissible. When you're dealing with a court, you always do this by rotation so as to avoid picking your favorites. And then if it turns out you don't like the three-member panel, you can put two more guys on to reverse it. And then if you don't like that, you can put yourself on the panel and decide to reverse the case. That's what was being done inside the PTO. Well, I just think this is crazy. And you had opportunity after opportunity to do it. And the Supreme Court, instead of getting it right, they spent their time worrying about the appointments clause. And that's a question of how do you appoint officials inside the executive branch and their certain routines. And if they're not followed, um, the thing is void. But the problem about the appointments clause is if you do it wrong the first time, and there's a second time, and you'll always do it right. So you can't solve the due process problem by saying you've got to know who the head of the department is. If you have to know who it is, if necessary, it'll be the entire commission will make the appointment. And so it's to negate the problem of the appointments clause, but you won't negate the due process problem. 
The due process clause is basically robust against legislative intrigue. Everything else that you're talking about is going to be a protracted song and dance, which is why, since the case was raised below, when it goes to the Supreme Court, and it surely will, uh, you should not let go of this due process argument. The way it was worked here, in a footnote, Judge Elrod says, I don't have to talk about due process. I'm going to talk about structure. And I think she made the wrong choice. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Make sure to read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, published on Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. If you found this conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. See you next week. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.